Romans 1, verse 15 through 23. For this reason, I have heard, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you to, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God, we ask that you would meet us here now. God, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to do a ministry in our hearts that would otherwise not be done unless we are here relying on you. God, we come to you with our lives and and we ask, God, that you you would do some surgery in our hearts and that, God, we collectively as a church need you. That, that the work that you do is, is not just in a bunch of individuals, but, but God, it's a work that you're doing in us. And it's a work that you want to do through us. And so, God, we, we say, have your way in our hearts, have your way in our lives. And God, would you allow this great word to be planted in our hearts so that, God, it would not return void, but, God, you would gain glory. In Jesus' name, the church says, amen. Amen. We're wrapping up this part of the prayer in Ephesians, and I've really enjoyed learning these lessons in the school of prayer from the Apostle Paul. And I, I can tell you that even in my own prayer life, it's, it's beginning to, to, to change some of my patterns of prayer, some of my patterns of even pastoring, as I learn how to rely on God to lead this church, to lead my family, to be the, the husband and father and neighbor and member of this community that I am. I'm, I'm reliant more and more on God. And in fact, a lot of the prayers of Paul, I find myself praying for, for, for myself and for you. And God is demonstrating this work of renewal in my heart and life. And I hope that you're learning these lessons in the school of prayer as we just look at Paul's prayer for the church of Ephesus and and we say, God, would you make it true today in this church? Would you make it true today in this city? Would you make it true today in our lives? And and that's really what I want to see. And today in, in Paul's prayer, 
he's got really one direction that we find out. He started asking that they would be enlightened with the knowledge of God. That they would know God better. That they would love God more. That they would be, be more in tune with the working power of the Holy Spirit with wisdom and revelation. And that way they know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives within me and you. But, but we see that his direction goes from there. And then it goes really to the end that Jesus would be first in all things. Jesus first. Say that with me. Jesus first. That's, that's who we want to be, a Jesus first people. That's what we want to all be about, that, that Jesus would be first in our lives. And, and it's one thing to say it, and it's an entirely another thing to live it out, right? Like, everybody comes in here, and, and you're probably like, I want that. To some degree, to some measure, I want a Jesus-first life. And we sing the songs, and we lift up our hands, and we cry out with our hearts, God, Jesus-first. You are first, we know you're first, and somehow, Sunday to Monday takes place, and we forget all about it, don't we? We forget about it when we're in an argument. We forget about it when it feels like all hell's breaking loose and our family's falling apart or we're we're running late to work and we realize that this is going to be costly and these things start to happen and we just forget that Jesus needs to be first in these moments. And this is something that I want to draw your attention today because this is what I want to confront Because if Paul's prayer is going to become reality, that Jesus, the knowledge of God that leads to Jesus being preeminent or first in our lives, we have to confront what I call the practical atheist. The practical atheist says, I believe in God, but dot, dot, dot. I believe in God, but I'm not sure if he's real. (laughs) I believe in Jesus, but... Dot, dot, dot. What's your, what's the words that follow the but after I believe in God? I believe in God, but I don't know if he really cares for me. I believe in God, but I'm not so sure he's connected to my life right now. I believe in God, but I'm not really sure if that matters when I go to my job. Those things are the things that we need to confront so that Jesus can be first in all things of our life. Let me put it to you this way. I believe in the traffic laws, right? I believe that they matter. I think that traffic laws are really important. I don't think that anyone should drink and drive. I don't think that anyone should go too much over the speed limit. I think that if you come to a stop sign, you should slow down a little bit before you get there and make sure no one's coming. But if, like, no one's coming, then go ahead forward, right? Right? I believe in the traffic laws, but... To the degree that they might inconvenience me, I'm not really so sure if I believe in them. Let me, let me give you a personal illustration. Here's a picture of, that's, that's me, that's my car, pro- provided by the city of Winter Park. Thank you very much. Um, that's my car, and there's a stop little line there. No turn on red. Let me show you the next picture. Next slide, please. <laughs> That was me not stopping and turning right on red because I was a practical atheist with the traffic laws, right? I didn't really believe they they mattered. And then I find out they really do matter $130 lighter in my bank account, right? It was back in April. I was coming from a meeting with pastors, by the way. You know, we had prayed all day. We had sought the Lord. And Pastor Ryan just blows by the no turn on red signal. Okay? 
I believe in traffic laws, but I'm not really sure if they matter in my everyday life. Who's watching anyway? Well, apparently somebody is. <laughs> and, and we kind of live that way as it relates to God. We, we know that what God gives us in our head is good. We know that God's commands are for his glory and our good. But, but do we really believe it? Are we willing to walk it out? Are we willing to live it out? Are we willing to trust him in those moments when we're, when we're most prone to forget that God matters and think that something else matters more than him? Because that's really what a practical atheist does is if God's not practical, then we just get rid of him. And we can say that God exists, but in reality, we deny his power. We say that Jesus sets us free from sin, but we don't pursue a life of holiness. We say that prayer is important, but instead of using it as our first response, it is our last resort. We say that church is a place that I need to be at, but until when it stops meeting my needs, then we say that the church doesn't matter. We think that Jesus is helpful when we call on him, but we fail to see Jesus as beautiful. And we fail to allow the working power of the gospel to capture our hearts. If Jesus is only helpful, then he's as good as far as we can throw him. But unless we see Jesus as beautiful, then we know, we know this part of Paul's prayer that says, all rule, all dominion, all authority, and all power. He's over all. Is he over your life today? Now, you might be tempted to say, man, I just really wish my roommate was here to hear this sermon. <laughs> I, I, I really wish, I really wish my neighbor was here to hear this sermon. I want to I confront it in you and me today. I want to confront the practical atheists in our hearts and allow God to change us. That you should expect nothing less of that today. Because this is something that we're praying with the divine authority of God that says this is what God wants. He wants to bring growth to your life today. He wants Jesus to be first in your life today. And he doesn't want to be first only with your words he wants to be first in your heart. He wants to be first in your mind. And he wants to be first with your actions. That everything about your life would be for the glory of God. If we can be that church, we will change this city. If we can be that church, we will change the world that we live in. If we can be that church, it would completely change the trajectory of generations to come by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit right now. That's what I want to see in this prayer today, that it would be real of us and we would confront the practical atheists in our own lives. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, But understand this, that in the last days, when the Bible says last days, it's often talking about not the end times, but it's talking about the times after Jesus. Now, sometimes it's talking about the end times, but what Paul is going at here for Timothy, in the times after Christ, he says, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive 
disobedient to their parents. I tell my kids that all the time. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. May we not be satisfied with the appearance of godliness. May we not be satisfied that we're in church today and we can check the box off. May we not be satisfied with a a small prayer and a little devotional in the morning. That we really just, uh, it's just a rule that we're trying to complete. But we go and our hearts have this Fort Knox wall around them. And we're not letting God in. Because with all of our hearts in our sin nature, it's refusing the Jesus first life. May we surrender our hearts and lives to this work of Jesus in our lives. That's the lesson in the school of prayer that the Apostle Paul teaches us through his prayer. That ultimately all of our prayers, that ultimately all of our lives should point in one direction. And that is to the one who sits on the throne. And the one who's in all authority, all power, and all rule. So here's the the prayer that I've prayed for you and the prayer that I want us to pray together as as we go through this series and we learn these lessons. But but the prayer is that we would know Christ over all things, that we would know Christ over all things, that the one who was in the tomb after being crucified is the one who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, ruling and reigning. The book of Hebrews says that he sits. It means that, that means when, when you have a king who's sitting on his throne, that king's not worried about really anything. When you have a king that's sitting on his throne, he, it, it's a king who's comfortable. It's the king who realizes that he's in full control and he has dominion, power, rule, and authority. It's the king who realizes That the work has been done. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus wasn't sitting. Jesus was hanging on the cross. Because he was doing the work that needed to be done for our redemption. He was doing the work that needed to be done. So that his kingdom could be established. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was doing the work so that we could find hope and forgiveness. That was the work of the cross. That's not where he is right now. He's not on the cross. He only had to go there one time. He's not going there again. He's not going into the grave again. He's already ascended to the right hand of the throne of heaven. And he shows that Jesus is the one who rules over all things right now. All things. The the literal translation for the word all things in the Greek is all things, right? Everything. He's over it all. There is nothing that escapes Jesus. Not a molecule, not an atom, not the way the river turns or flows. Everything is under the incredible power of this man, Jesus, who died for us. Like, why did he do that? That's why Paul says, this is a mystery. Why did he do that? He didn't have to, but he chose to. No one takes my life, Jesus says. I lay it down. He gave his life 
so that we might know him over all things. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, This is a conversation that David sees happening between God the Father and God the Son. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus is conversing, God the Father, God the Son are conversing. This word Lord is the word Yahweh. And he's speaking to Adonai. There's actually two words for lords there that are in that verse. Yahweh. And Adonai, Yahweh, the creator, the author, the sustainer. And Adonai, which is like the master and commander. And the one who is the creator and author and sustainer is saying to the master and commander, the one who's going to execute the judgment and justice of God, he's saying, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus has no enemies. No enemies that will ever be able to defeat him. Now, there are enemies of Jesus, but they don't stand a chance. And that's the picture that Paul is praying that he gives to us in this prayer that that we would see him. That we would see the king victorious. That we would see that Jesus is above all the princes and prime ministers of this world. When your candidate doesn't get elected, how does that make you feel? When your political party's not in power, how does that make you feel? Now, the allegiances that we have are not towards political candidates or political powers. Not to say that we shouldn't be involved involved in the system. We very much should. That way we could see thy kingdom come and thy will be done. But when someone comes to power, whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or whoever it is, we realize that ultimately God is the one who's orchestrating all things for his glory and our good. And so over all rule and authority is Jesus. Not only in this age, he's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, throughout all history. You see, all history is his story. It's all about him. And that our lives would reflect that. This this is where I, I came to a point in my life where I had to ask some hard questions about myself because I grew up in a Christian home. And when I grew up in the Christian home, I was taught that it's important to love Jesus, but I was never shown it. And I've seen my parents, by God's grace, transformed in the realities of this. But, but they, they lived a, a life that says we want God to be first, but they, they never really showed me what that looked like. Until I got into, until I got into my, my last few years of high school is when my family returned to the church. But then I, I was just kind of along for the ride. I didn't really know God. I just kind of started doing the church thing. And I thought the church thing was really important and necessary. And so that became a means for me saying, okay, if I'm just doing the church thing, then Jesus is first in my life. And then later on, I went to college and I was away from everything that was comfortable. I was away from everything that I knew known to be, to, 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 to be a ground that I could put my feet on. It felt like the rug, rug was pulled out from under me. And then I had no place else to go. But God, and that's when God, through his grace, caused me to see that the words of my mouth was not at matching up with the reality of my heart. And I surrendered my life to Christ. I said, Jesus, you be Lord. You be Lord. And I remember reading Colossians 1.15. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. And I remember reading that verse and realizing, if all things exist for the glory of God, then why does my life not? And I said, God, I want to live for your glory. Maybe that's the conversation that you you have to have with the Lord today. Maybe you've just kind of assumed the Jesus first life in your walk, but you've not lived it out. Maybe you've just had a, 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 an encounter with God, but that encounter has not carried you through. And the, the reality is you don't just need the encounter with God, you need the presence of God. And the presence of God that's always with you. That God wants to give to you today. And that, that you would come to that place and say, God, confront the practical atheist within me. Because I don't want to be someone at the end of days that says, Lord, Lord. And the one who stands in judgment say, depart from me for I never knew you. There's a watershed moment we got to come to in the Christian life. Francis Chan talks about this. I know if you know Francis Chan, he's a pastor out of California. Really inspiration to so many. And Francis Chan, he he talks about how I, I don't want when I preach, to give people a false impression that they might be saved when they are really not. But at the other side of things, I don't want to cause people to always live in fear that they're not a Christian or feel like they have to earn salvation by their own strength. He said, but this verse, this verse, I keep coming to it again and again. Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, there there are those who at the end of time will think that they have lived the the, the life that says, I need God, I'm living for God. But but all they do is they say that with their mouth, but their souls have not been converted to Christ. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you evildoer. And they'll live a life eternally separated from God in hell. That's a fear that I have. I don't want that for you. Now, at the same time, I don't want you to fear that who know the Lord. That you would constantly be looking over your shoulder, thinking that somehow you have to earn a salvation and grace that's only been given to you freely and fully, finally at Christ. And the tension is that word grace, that we would be dependent on God. And I think that's the question I have to ask for you. Do you need him? Can you do this Christian life of your own strength? If so, maybe you can tell us how because I can't figure it out. (laughs) Maybe you can get up here and give us a lesson on it because it can't be done in and of our own strength. But at the same time, There's this work where we're aware of God convicting of a sin and leading us into a life of purity and holiness because he is the one who's over all things. Now, the second thing I want to draw your attention to is God's over the big things, but he's also over the small things. I have had times where I have had these prayer requests and I struggle to go to God with prayer requests because why would God really care about my prayer request here? You know what I mean? Like, does he really care that, you know, my, my kids are sick and it's just kind of a 24-hour flu bug and I've just had a really hard day? Like, should I even burden him with that prayer? I mean, he's got a world to run. 
You know, anybody ever been there? Like, how can God really care about what I'm going through today? He's running the whole world, and I'm just kind of one out of seven billion people on the planet. How could God even care for me? Carrie and I, in our early years of marriage, we struggled with, with having children. We wanted to have children earlier on. We felt like everything was right to have children, and it took several years for us to get pregnant. And I remember in those times feeling isolated, feeling alone, feeling like God didn't care about us, feeling like God wasn't listening to us, feeling guilty for these desires in our hearts that, 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 that we had, that, that, that God would give us a child, and, and somehow God didn't really care about it. That's what that I thought. It was this practical atheism where I, I felt like, how can I burden God with something so small when we have all these orphans in the world? How can I burden God with something so small and I remember that, that some of the, the ways I had to really lead Carrie was, was just to realize myself that God cares. God cares. Like, take those burdens to him. Take those everyday burdens to him because he cares. Paul says, cast your anxiety on him. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is nothing that you cannot take to the right hand of the throne of heaven right now, to the one who sits, because he's accomplished it all. And he cares for you. The one who made the stars. David says it this way. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your hands, their fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. I see David as a shepherd in the pasture and he's with the sheep and he is looking on a clear night where there's no like lights around him and he can just see the starry host and he begins to grasp his insignificance. But at the same time that he grasps his insignificance, he's able to grasp how significant he is to God in that moment that God would care for him. Can you grasp that? Like you might feel insignificant in a world of 7 billion people, but I tell you what, right now, God does not have bigger fish to fry than your concerns and your cares. God wants to hear them. He wants to engage you. He wants to interact with you. And his goal in you is more than your prayers being answered. It's about you knowing him, and that's the prayer that Paul prayed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It means God prayed that prayer for you. That you would know him and that Jesus would be first in all of your life. And he'll use those difficulties to bring you to your knees. Pastoring is not easy. And oftentimes when somebody asks me what's the hardest thing about pastoring, I would say it's confidence. It's hard to have confidence in myself, it's hard to have confidence in God's plan. It's hard to have those things. But you know what I've had to learn in my time of pastoring is that confidence is best found on your knees in prayer. That it is the Lord that we rely on because my confidence in myself is only going to take me towards pride or towards giving up. But God's confidence when I'm relying upon him it allows me to be in tune with the Spirit and lead and love this church at the same time leading and loving my family and being the person that God has called me to be. The next thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to know is to know Christ over the church. To know Christ over the church. This is part of his prayer. 
that the church of Ephesus would know that Jesus is head of the church. This is really, this is really incredible here because, because you have God over all things, but you have his attention that's devoted to his people, the church. The God who oversees all human governments. The God who, sees, who oversees all the molecules and making of the surrounding world is the God who's over the church. And he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That Jesus didn't just die for a group of individuals. That Jesus didn't die for just a a bunch of us in isolation. No, Jesus died for the church collective from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. Everyone that Jesus died for, he has fully accounted. All present and accounted for. Trust me, when Jesus is in heaven, he knows everyone that's there and he knows it down to the detail of the hairs on their head. By the way, mine hairs on my head are getting a little less and less. And he knows it. He can count them. I almost can too. (laughs) Uh, You laugh, you laugh. You know, some of the guys are going to figure this out. They're going to figure this out. I sure have. I could preach a whole sermon on hair loss. I'm even trying a new shampoo, and hopefully it's supposed to open the pores again, but anyway, we'll, 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 we'll try that later. <laughs> TMI. God is over every hair loss in your head. Okay, here we go. Um, the, uh, the command that we have in Scripture is that Jesus is, is head of the church as a husband is the head of a family. Like there's something that God does to personalize this. And I know when we, we talked about praying to God as father, we talked about how our relationship with our fathers aren't perfect, right? And some of you have broken relationships with your dad. And that has been a tool that Satan has used to say that you can't trust God because you could never trust your dad. But, but, here we have the words of the gospel that says, would your dad die for you when he never had to? When he could have just done something differently? No, my, my dad wouldn't do that. But here, here, our heavenly father, he already did that. And the commands that we have as a husband, and, and this is something that we can all learn. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Do you know what what Paul points us to? Is the perfect marriage. And the perfect marriage is the marriage of the bridegroom and the bride in the heavenly realm. That Jesus Christ gave his life for a wayward bride. That Jesus gave his life for a bride who sinned against him. That Jesus gave himself fully and finally to her. Oftentimes in premarital counseling, I'll, I'll have a couple in front of me. And the couple, I'll look at the man and I'll say to him, will you die for her? And he'll say, without a doubt. And I believe him. His eyes are firm. He'll say, yes, I'll die for her. And then my next question is, will you live for her? Will you live for her? This is the call of husbands with their wives is that we would live for our bride. 
And Jesus not only died for her, but he lived for her. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is cleansing her with a washing of his word. It means that this church is not perfect. It means that this church is not perfect. It means that your pastor needs grace day after day. But it also means that there is a perfect, a perfecting work that's taking place as Jesus Christ is sanctifying us. He, he is washing us with the water of his word right now. He is doing that work. Here's where the practical atheist comes involved. I was reading this statistic. This was back in 2010, but it says that 72 per Christians say they have percent of Christians say that they have made a personal commitment to Christ as Lord, but only 17 of those believe that the church is necessary for their walk with Christ. I, I, one of the things that Paul is praying for for the church of Ephesus is that they would see that the church is necessary for your walk with Christ. There is no lonely ranger Christianity. And I have seen this happen time and time again. And many times it's due to the imperfections of a church, but it's also due to the imperfections of its members or individuals where people make a choice to leave the church. And when they make a choice to leave with church, it ends up that they leave their relationship with God altogether because they don't see that the relationship they have with Christ's bride, the church, is one that God gave them and is necessary for their growth as Christians so that Jesus would be first in all things. I want to help you. I want your community groups to help you. I want the ministry teams that are here to help you. And when, when, when by God's grace we serve the city, I want us to be a place and a people that serve the city so that Jesus is first. So that way the world would see that the church is necessary. And the irony of the whole thing is 2,000 years later, the church is still here. Still here. With all our problems, with all the agony within it, with all the challenges, God is still bringing his perfecting power upon the church today. Brian Chapel says the church is the primary instrument of the glory of Christ in this earth. The primary instrument. That's why the next part of the Paul's, uh, Paul's prayer is super important. In that he says... And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. John Piper says that the church is the fullness of God to a lost and broken world. The fullness of God. If that is true, which I believe it is, then there is no other hope for the world in Christ than through the church. That's the gravity of which we need to come to grips with, the gravity of which we need to understand things in our lives today. But he is also the one who fills the church. And this is what Paul, this is the next part of this, this lesson in prayer that I want us to know, that we would know Christ as the fullness of the church. Jesus gave his life to the church so the church can exist for Jesus. Jesus gave his life to the church so the church can exist for Jesus. We exist for no other reason. When churches die and, and when, when churches uh, lose focus, lose mission, it's, the, it, 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 it's a funeral. 
You can go to her death because she loses the fact the, that Jesus is all in all and something else becomes more important. Maybe it's a program. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's a personality. Those things become more important. And even though more people might come in attendance, even though more people, my ears might be tickled, as Paul says in Timothy, The church is slowly dying from the inside out because Christ is not first. He is not the fullness of the church. The church needs to realize that Jesus is the source of our strength and our satisfaction so that we can be the fullness of God to the lost and broken world. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 through 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. With the saints and members of the household of God. Do you hear that? Saints. You are a saint in the household of God. You are of incredible importance in the kingdom of God. Just as much as Peter and Paul and the apostles and Lydia. And those whom the the scriptures bring to mind. You are a saint in the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built, right now, being built. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is making his home in us. You're being joined together. This is what God has done through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has voluntarily committed himself to the bride. And there's a completeness that comes from that when his church is redeemed. And that's why Jesus will not rest until his church is fully and finally redeemed. And that is when we will be taken up with him and brought To that place where he is seated right now. That's why I said your future is certain. Your inheritance is sure. Because he's the one who signs, seals, and delivers it. And he is the one who is bringing it about right now. Brian Chappell again says, The corporate calling of the church means that there can be no deserters. To move forward without her is not only to move beyond our spiritual supply lines. It is to declare the body of Christ, his bride, irrelevant to us. Or contrary to our causes. This can be quite easy to do because the church can be intolerant, intractable, tradition-bound, blind to her duty, and a pain to endure. She can be an ugly bride, but she is the beloved bride of Christ and the only instrument which will finally fulfill the purposes, his purposes on this earth. This is why she is worth the effort and worth the dedication of our lives. Oh, that we would realize that the church is worth the effort and the dedication of our lives. That for as much as we have to endure, we're going to receive ten times more because God honors those who honor him and God honors those who honor the church. Give your life to the church. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor. It doesn't mean that you have to sing worship like Josiah. Man, that guy's incredible. I could never do that. I try to, and he tells me to quiet down sometimes. (laughs) Not really, but he should. (laughs) 
It means that we're, that we're giving our life for the sake of his body. And we're living out the church, not only in the four walls of this building, but in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities. And we are pointing people to Jesus. In closing, I want us to ask a couple questions. I want us to do a personal diagnostic. And, and, and let me just warn you in telling this. I, I want you to, to remember the word grace. Because you're not going to ace this test. In fact, you'll probably flunk it. <laughs> I know I did. But what it should do is drive us to our knees. But I want you to ask the question, is Christ first in my relationships? And I want to take the relationships that are closest and work your way out. If you're married with your spouse, if you have children with your family, with your family that is around you, with your roommates, with your coworkers, with your friends, is Christ first in those relationships? The next question I want you to ask is, is Christ first over my finances? Oftentimes you can tell what a person worships by looking at their bank statements, right? Or you can go online and see it on their, their statements there. Is Christ over your finances? Do you, do you give God glory in the way you spend your money? Do you give 10% to the church? Do you give wholeheartedly and committedly to the mission that God has called you to? Are you generous with others? Because if not, you have to ask the question, am I living the me first life or the Christ first life? Is Christ first the way in the way I spend my time? Is your time a testimony? Is your time a testimony of God's grace? Where do you see Christ reflected in your time? This doesn't mean that you don't have rest and relaxation. It doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that you skip your job tomorrow. It means that are you giving Jesus first priority? Are you opening the word of God in the morning and saying, God, I need you? Are you closing your day out in prayer? Is he first in your time? The next question and the last question is, Am I pursuing Jesus with a purity of heart? You could do the other ones like really good. You could just ace them. But unless you're pursuing Jesus with a purity of heart, with a heart that says, God, I'm nothing without you. And you're lost. You're like the Pharisees who could ace that test in their own mind. But their hearts were far from God. And here's my prayer right now is that God's heart brings us close, that we would together be brought close to God because we need him right now, his fullness. John 1.16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The, the only way that Jesus Christ would be first in your life is not you rearranging the way you spend your money. It's not you rearranging the way you spend your time. It's not you rearranging how you're doing your relationships. It's you reorienting your heart to what needs to be set as priority. Unless it's a heart work, it's not going to happen. And so today, that's where our prayers are. God, change my heart so that these things, the things that need to be reflective that you're first, can happen so that my heart is reoriented to you. That's what God desires for us. That our desires would be fully and finally for him. And he'll do that work. That Jesus would be the love of our hearts. And we would 
cast everything upon him and know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father, Father, you are the king of glory. You're the one who's majestic and high and above all. But Lord, you don't don't hesitate to come down and, and to minister to us. And so God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would minister to our hearts as as we sit at your feet and we ask God that you would be first in our lives over the big over the small that Jesus you would be head over the church in our church and that God we would be fully committed to her through you and that God everything that we're lacking right now in grace you would fill us because we need it because we know that it's only by grace we've been saved it's by grace that our lives can change. It's only by grace that we can come to know you. So God, that broken body, that shed blood that you gave us on the cross is the broken body and shed blood that we receive. So when we take communion, we do this in remembrance of what you have done and that God, you are finally seated, but at the same time, God, you are at work exactly where we need you to trust in you. So when we take communion, Lord, today, we say we trust in you. We commit our lives to you. And not only do we say with our mouths, but we want it with our desires that Jesus would be first. And would we, would you bring about this change in Christ's name the church says, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to continue to worship through song and communion. You can follow down these aisles and take communion here. And For those who trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your forgiver, leader, and Lord, the communion table is open to you. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus for the first time today. Come and take communion, remembering his broken body and his shed blood.